Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. David Haig is my guest on the Designer Maker Revolution today. David's such an amazing designer maker. He is a very sensitive chap, and I think you're really going to enjoy David's outlook on life and the way he designs and makes things. His chairs are quite well known, and they are super beautiful. Check them out on his website, davidhaig.co.nz that's d-a-v-i-d-h-a-i-g.co.nz check out this podcast on facebook instagram it does have a website kind of and uh, patreon and t-shirts will be forthcoming so you'll be able to support the podcast when i've got that up and running in between now and then, please welcome David Haig. Hello. David Haig. Hello, Adrian. How are you? How are you? I'm, I'm very happy. I, I, actually, I printed off uh, your, your questions. They're so good. They really are. You, oh, you have a lot good. of thought in the, into these. Yeah, well done. Thank you very much. It means a lot to me to have these conversations, and it does mean a lot to get good feedback too. It means I'm on the right oh, path. You've done some um, amazing sort of research already, so... Uh, yeah. Well, you know what? Yeah, well, cheers. Um, great to talk to you. That's humbling as well. What I hope in these conversations is that people coming up can get some sort of inspiration as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you see where I'm coming from? So I'm really hoping that makers and designers in any field can come to these conversations and get something out of them to inspire them. Absolutely. Well, you know, everyone's got a, a, a different take on the way things have worked out for them and or mm. not worked. Yeah, it's it's got to be interesting, in uh, in in lots of ways. Mm. So um, yeah, I, uh, are we ready to go? <laughs> we we are going. Oh, we are. We, this is it. <laughs> this is it. We're in it. How does it feel so far? <laughs> it's uh, it, it's great. Bloody good. I, I'm just looking at the uh, at your at your great questions. Are uh, is, is is that a structure you want to you're keen to follow? Or, yeah, look. Or? That's that's a question that everyone pretty much asks. I don't care, to be honest. It's a good thing for both of us to have some sort of structure that I can fall back on. Sure. And also I think that you can fall back on too. Like some people tend to ask their own questions and that's great and other people need questions asked of them and that's great too. And what we'll find as we're going along is that we'll get some common threads that we'll tease out in greater depth and some of these questions we won't even get to. That's good, you know. Okay. Yep, what we want is for some great stories and, you know, I want to know how people tick, especially creative people. You're going to have heaps of stories. You're going to let us all know what's going on in your world and how you got to be where you are and what your hopes and dreams are and... And that's, you know, that's what we're here for. Sure. 
sure. Okay. I'll do my very best. You will. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution, David Haig. Thank you very much, Adrian. Do you want to ask yourself the next question since you've got the questions in front of you? You don't have to. I'm only joking. I'm only joking. You you can, (laughs) but you don't have to. If someone asks me what I do for a living, how do I answer them? How do you ask them? Uh, Pretty straight, actually. I'd I'd say I design and build wooden furniture, which Mm. kind of can be a little bit of a conversation stopper at that point if people don't sort of tease it out a little bit. But that's kind of exactly what I do. And and in the last 20 years, I've taught quite a bit as well. Mm. But it's really it. I've designed and built wooden furniture for damn near 40 years. So so you you ask, have I ever felt I'm a revolutionary? Well, sort of. (laughs) Sometimes revolutionaries, I think, um, you know, their revolution is actually a kind of almost like a nostalgia, harking back to an earlier time. And Mm. if I'm a revolutionary, I think I'm of that kind rather than the brave new world kind. You know, I feel that what I do is harking back to a time when craftsmanship was valued and honoured and, you know, a a good number of people, a large number of people in in the society were craftsmen and it was, you know, it was a recognised way of making a living. Do you reckon that's changed though, David? Do you think today we don't have that? I think think it has. I mean... I mean, always it's. it's it, I think now it's 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 more different than it's kind of ever been. Really, things seem so much uh, so kind of fragmented. There's so many different areas that you can enter, and not many people stick at one thing for all that long. It seems. Do you think that's a so, bad thing? I I, I wouldn't. It, it, it's it's what it, it's what it is. It's. Mm. It, I wouldn't like to. I would find it hard to. Um, I'm not that kind of a flexible person, I, I guess. Yeah, that's like- interesting. That's interesting you say that because one of the things that really struck me about your work is that you've got some designs that you make again and again. And like, what's your drive with that? What? Why you? do that as opposed to making one thing and then you're getting bored of it you know you get bored of it even before you're finished with it i know some people like myself are in that sort of camp yes absolutely my uh and i've got a lot of friends in that camp too Mm. um so how how does that work for you i'm never really satisfied with what i've just made but but i always feel like it it could be it could be better if i approached it slightly differently or tried it with a a few different details or maybe a different wood or something like that. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> it's probably a sort of a kind of um, permanent state of semi-amnesia, I suppose. I, I, I constantly think that the next one of whatever I've built will, will be perhaps the best. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, reaching for some kind of apotheosis. That's a beautiful word. It's a lovely word, isn't it? Don't ask me exactly what it means. No, it's got to, though. <laughs> I have to ask now that you mentioned. <laughs> a sort of um, kind of inner enlightenment or almost mm. an outer enlightenment, really. Yeah, I, I, I guess as well it's a, it's a sort of caution in my nature. Um, for many years it was very, very hard to, to, to just keep keep going and keeping keeping making a living. I mean, I supported the family with three boys and um, everything involved with that for all the time of the growing up doing this. So there was never a lot of 
leeway to think, okay, I can just have a kind of quiet play here for a month or two. It just didn't happen. You know? Gosh, look, I've, I want to tease this part of it out too because uh, it, the first question I've got to ask is, did you ever make kitchens and bathrooms and things like that? No, I, I managed to escape. So I how did to... you do that? Like, well, well, what I did was when my second son was just born, so I had two, one, one of them was four months old and one was, one was two, my wife's mother sent us a plane ticket for all of the family to come back to England where she lived. Mm-hmm. And I thought I'd been doing sort of odd jobs and working with a builder, but I, 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 I somehow knew building wasn't the right thing for me. But I'd really enjoyed the sort of restoring a few old windows and doors and things like that. So mm. also my interest in history, I'd done a history degree. I thought, well, if I go back to England, I'll make the best of it and try to get work with an antique restorer because I thought, well, that'll be interesting. And I'd always, and I still do, I love, I love old, old work. It, it, it communicates things to me in a special way, uh, as it does to many people. So I, I went to England and I worked with an antique restorer in Farnham, Surrey for six months. And um, he paid me pretty low wage, but um, with Claire's mum's sort of help, um, she lent us her car now and again. And we, we rented a very cheap little place in um, just outside Farnham. We survived for six months and, I, and, I, and his workshop had about seven or eight apprentices in it who were all, uh, it was like a sweatshop really, but a huge amount of antique furniture came through that place every every week. And um, I treated it like a intensive learning experience. So I would, I had a notebook out at lunchtime every day and in the evening, noting down what I'd seen and what I'd learned. Mm. And I kept a, a, a pace of what all the projects or the, suddenly the interesting ones, what was happening. Because I'd never done anything like that. It was completely new to me. And I was incredibly lucky to, to get a bench in his workshop at all. It was, um, it was one of these many times in my life where I almost feel there's been a sort of little, little providence has come my way in some mysterious mm. way. Because every week while I was there, there would be some likely lad or more, more often their mother coming up and saying, you know, little Johnny's uh, been great at woodwork at school, Mr. Booth, could you give him a job? But when I turned up, there was just a place had just opened. Mm-hmm. One of his best apprentices had just left and he hated to see an empty bench and I just just happened to turn up on the day he gave me a job. So anyway, long and the short of it is that that training, when I came back to New Zealand, I, I sort of bought a couple of trunks full of um, inlays and um, you know, um, rabbit glues and stains and shellac and brass escutcheon plates and bits of mahogany, things I thought I could, I, I'd need. And I just, you know, pinned my shingle to the door of a workshop in, a, in, in, in the middle of Nelson that um, an antique dealer uh, let me have and became an antique restorer, like just, which was just a thing back then. This was 1980, 81. Mm. Antiques were pouring into New Zealand. Everyone wanted to restore them. They were the kind of trendy thing. And mm. there were very, very few um, trained restorers in, in, um, in New Zealand at all. So I kind of had a head start, even though I'd only done it for six months. But I was fascinated by it. I mean, for three or four years, everything that came through the door was totally, absolutely enrapturing to me. I found it so interesting. Do you still find it interesting? No. <laughs> it's the honest answer. A, a lot less really interesting I, I sort of I, and in fact you know my my design awareness was really from from a, a very a sort of visceral completely native input which was 
something started coming through the door that I just after a while started hating or really disliking. And yeah. other things came through the door that I really liked. And what I found was that it was a kind of a simple 18th century seaman's chest would come through with no decoration on it, mm. um, perhaps, or just a, a little bit of carving on one end or something. And I found that just beautiful. And then a Victorian chiffonier with mm. acres of all this, you know, carving and inlay and, and uh, veneer peeled off here and there. And I would just sort of inwardly groan. And um, it was just interesting to me to notice that my responses had changed, you know, over three or four years. You'd become more aware, more yes. sophisticated. Yes, it just, and, and it was a very, very natural process. It wasn't by mm. reading books or, or looking at magazines. It just, and it happened, really. Did you grow up uh, in the UK? I grew up in the UK, yeah. I was, I was actually born in Malaya, so I had the first five years did of my you, life in, in uh, Malaya. How, my how did you manage, yeah, tell us the story there. Well, my dad was a, 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 you know, like many people, who he, he grew up in India. Um, his father was a high-up Indian civil servant in the British Raj. So he loved, the, he loved the East, and after the war, which he spent a lot of the time in Burma, he decided to stay out, out East. And, um, Wait on, was he, was he fighting, or was he a prisoner of war in Burma? No, he wasn't. He, he was part one side of a hill. And the Japanese were parked the other side of a hill Good for God. about two years, and that, that was that was the full extent of the Japanese movement. And um, yeah. he just said it was intensely boring and intensely ghastly, and probably and, incredibly uh, frightening at the same time. Well, yes, he 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 he, he was a total, absolute not. Um, kind of pacifist socialist. My dad. He was a very well educated yeah. man. He went mm. to just during Oxford and did a classics degree and everything, but he was absolutely hated war and the war he, he just said was a grey, horrible period for him. He had he had really no much no good to say of it really. Mm. I think compounded by the fact that once one one day him there were two captains and three tanks and, and, and however many men to, to sort of back them up in his little spot. And one day an order came through for one of the tanks to do a recce, as they call it, reconnaissance over the hill. And my dad said in the morning, um, him and the other captain, who was obviously a, a good friend, um, tossed a coin for who should go, and the other captain got it. Um, and he went over the hill and was blown to pieces. Oh, good God. And that's what I've experienced. So your father, your father was a captain? He was a captain, yeah. Yeah. Non-commissioned officer? Yeah. Commissioned officer. No, he was, oh, that was a commissioned officer. Yeah. He, he was in the... In the tank call. He was in the tank call. Good God. Um, that was a, he, he told very, very few war stories, but that was one of them. Yeah. But anyway, he, he ended up, so he ended up after the war, he, he got in, he joined the education service and became a teacher in Malaya and um, ended up actually as the headmaster of the Malay College, which was called the Eton of the East. Yeah, right. Where all the Sultan's children went and, the, you know, Sultan's families. And um, your mum was a teacher, presumably, maybe? No, she was just a mum. Just a mum. She was a mum. She, um, they'd married in 1950. Was she Malaysian? No, 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 she was English. So dad came... Yeah, of course. Dad was... Dad dad at 32, which was considered a bit old, and his parents thought at the time he got married. So on one (laughs) furlough, as they call it, which was one sort of extended break, he'd already known my my mum from a a place he used to go on holiday. 
in Wales for years, mm-hmm. a big family sort of uh, sort of hunting lodge kind of place, and decided that she she would be she'd be the one. So he popped the question. They got married real quick, and and he brought her up to Malaya. Can you imagine and, uh, doing that? Like, can you imagine being your mum, somebody you literally barely know? You might like them, but you barely know them. And yeah. all of a sudden you're on the plane. No, you wouldn't even be on a plane. What am I thinking? You'd be on a boat to Malaya. Well, look, I think they, I think they might have gone out by flying boat the first few times, uh-huh. which was wonderful. Really lovely. It took about five days. They stopped <laughs> in Aden and Bahrain and all these other places. But no, you're absolutely right. And, and to be perfectly honest, it was a, uh, it was a bit of a disaster, really. Why is that? Well, they, they separated after 25 years. They had five children together. 25 years isn't too bad, though. It's not, no, it's not too bad, but, but probably it was, um, it was a lot later than they really should have. Yeah, right. But coming, coming when, they, when they moved to New Zealand, which is another phase of their life, you know, mm-hmm. 1970, 71, you know, my dad always said they moved to New Zealand to try to keep the marriage alive because my mum had got a bit between her teeth and wanted to become an organic alternative yeah. logical farmer. You know, she was well ahead of her time in that. Yeah. My dad was a lawyer. But he, he could see that mum had got the bit between her teeth, so he came mm-hmm. out to New Zealand and they started a little organic farm. And um, but dad stayed. You know, he was a, he was still a lawyer. And brought in what money there was. I just want to dwell on your mum and dad just a little bit longer. Do you do you reckon that there was a sense of privilege amongst those two? I mean, um, British people in Malaya, for instance. Like I would imagine there'd be a fairly Strong oh, us yeah. and them. Yeah. And yeah, you... they were. I mean, we had kind of armors, they were called. They were, they were like mm. um, house helps and, and a cook. I mean, the, the, the living arrangements were pretty, were pretty simple. They were just a little bungalow um, in a sort of, you know, down a dusty road in my, my memory. There was nothing flash. I mean, a lot wasn't flash in those days. We forget how poor the 1950s were. Yeah. But yes, I guess, I guess there, was, there was a sense of privilege. Although my dad became friends with some of the Chinese parents, uh, the wealthy parents who, sent their, who could afford to send their kids to the Malay College. Mm. And they were always sort of far wealthier. Than, than dad so he was always aware that um, you know as a teacher he was never going to be a wealthy man well around about 1970 1969 I think there was a revolution in Malaysia anyway and a lot of those Chinese had to leave they became refugees yes were you did. part of that was that part of the reason your parents left Malaysia no no it wasn't there, there was the um, what do they call it yeah there was basically the communist uh, uprising in in Malaysia, which was, um, uh, you know, it was like like happened all over Southeast Asia, mm. and it was harshly put down by the by Malaysian and British government. Mm. But in 1950, Malaya became Malaysia, um, uh-huh. and the Brits were basically booted out, mm-hmm. and that part of that diaspora, you know, kicked out at that point, and and went mm. back to England. Kind of, I mean, amazingly, he just had to sort of, he was 40, had three kids, and he just had to sort of pick up the pieces again. So he actually trained to be a lawyer. Mm. And we lived in a little house in Devon and um, had kids. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm, I'm just trying to piece together in my head, and here am I thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm just getting confused about <laughs> where you I grew up imagine. and where, where your dad grew up, and I'm sort of I'm getting them all conflated, which is my problem, not yours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's not, it's not, it wasn't a straightforward, not a straightforward story because then, then just to compound it, they had, 
they came back to England. I was basically educated in England. I was five mm. when they came back. So mm. that was probably that was probably the biggest sort of it was it was the biggest sort of shock really to me because you know Malaya was to me uh, a great deal of warmth, um, mm. running around half naked all the time. Um, lots of brown-skinned people with big, smiley, white mm-hmm. teeth and smiley faces. Endless freedom. And then England, 1960, it was prep school, um, grey stone walls, grumpy or angry people, <laughs> you know, cold. So it was like a bit like sort of paradise lost, really. It wasn't it wasn't such fun. On the other hand, we had lots of cousins. I mean, it's not that I had a terrible time or anything, but it was definitely Malaya stayed in my mind and all my sort of at a deep level. I think is the place where I was really happy. Have you ever been back? Uh, just a couple of times to Singapore more than Malaysia. Kuala Lumpur. Yeah, it's it's very different. It, it's interesting. It's. Um, it's much more kind of overtly Muslim than it was when I was mm. growing up. I never well, that's the revolution it. for you. That'll do it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, one of the places when I visited, I visited Hawaii once, and uh, we went to the tropical sort of side of it. And I remember sitting in a in a, in a house just a friend had, which had basically no walls, in this incredible warm, humid environment, and I had a kind of total flashback with all this vivid green around me and I just felt incredibly happy there. Yeah, really. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You're in Nelson in New Zealand and um, it's not a warm place, is it? (laughs) It's not that warm. I mean, it's not cold either, but it's still, you know, you... It's brisk. It's brisk (laughs) in the winter and and a lot of... Winters, I mean, it's nothing like England. It's a damn sight better than England. It's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's in many ways a lovely climate. It's kind of yeah, dry so. and clear in the yeah. main, but a, but windy. And you, you get three months of nice warm summer weather, which is not too bad. But if I probably had my complete freedom of choice, I, I would love to live. Uh, well, you know, Hawaii actually was just gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, so y- you've, you've been speaking to your wife about it, haven't you? Oh, yeah, Darling. we do. You do? Yeah. You're kidding me. <laughs> really? And you're going to retire? You're going to retire to Tahiti? Well, we're very, you know, we, we are very uh, bound, bound up in family here. Oh, um, of course. You know, fam- family yeah. is, you know, the reason I came here, you know, I joined my parents in 1976 yeah. finally. And, uh, you know, now we have three sons and now we've got four grandchildren. Yeah, then they're all in, they're all Wellington or, or one's in Nelson, two are in Wellington. Mm. And... Uh, just doesn't seem like an option. Yeah, actually, just you've got your priorities right. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, purely selfishly, I would love to go and live in Hawaii, but yeah. um, it's not life isn't that simple. No, you're just going to have to visit. Yeah. Either that, or tell your children and grandkids that they have to go and live there, and then you can go and live there too. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. Get I them don't to know, set up businesses they there. That. They can they can do tours to volcanoes or something. Yeah. Well, you yeah. could do tours to no, you could do tours to volcanoes in New Zealand, but you don't yeah, want to. You want to do it in Hawaii. And then well, did it? <laughs> <laughs> they did that, did they? <laughs> so, uh, you you just mentioned that you followed your parents to New Zealand. Yeah. So you were in yeah. like a boarding school, were you? Yes, yeah, so I, I was at boarding school. Um, 
it was a classic, you know, uh, back back then. I mean, I had a really traditional English, as you call it, you know, upper or middle class certainly education. And anyway, so I was at um, I was at Winchester College, which was a quite an amazing school, really, but not particularly happy there. I just basically didn't like being at school, but. I got a letter from my dad, as I did every every uh, probably every week actually, and um, and then the one particular letter he, he wrote and said, uh, "Dear David, you uh, blah blah blah. Your mother and I have decided to move the family to New Zealand," <laughs> which was the first I'd heard of it. How did you feel? Ah, initially I thought that is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I was a, I was a, a year into my A levels, and I was thinking. Oh, God, I can escape A-levels. I can get out of here. My <laughs> ticket to freedom. Great. Yeah. And then about a, about, about a couple of weeks later, um, the housemaster called me in and said, um, uh, I've been talking to your father, David, and, uh, and we've agreed that really it's much better if you stay here and the family will go to New Zealand. Bastards. You, you will stay here. And I thought, well, bugger. Yeah. You know, not at all what, I, what I'd really wanted. So I did. Do you, and I got my, you can't imagine yeah. that happening nowadays, can you? There'd be a bit of consultation. You'd hope there would be in the way. You would think there would be. Yeah. No, it was it was very unilateral back then. You know, yeah. the kids followed. Parents did what they did, and you followed them. Yeah. Um, but in the end, it, it worked out very well. I mean, I really don't think I'd have done what I, I have done if I hadn't had come to New Zealand. It was a, definitely a, a place where you could, or where I could then, um, remould myself, you know, kind of mm. discover whole new areas about about what I liked and what I could do, which was, I would What was Nelson like in the 1970s? Well, it, funnily enough, it had attracted quite early on in, in the, from, from the early 60s, actually, a group of mainly English, but some German kind of ref, ref, not exactly refugees, cause they were, but they were kind of, they, they were fleeing what they thought was the coming nuclear holocaust in, in, in Europe oh, and the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. But they also brought with them a, a lot of idealism about crafts. And so there were a, a terrific group of, of potters, weavers, and they came out early and established themselves. And they were like a completely different flavor to the, the regular local Kiwis. And they gave Nelson a different, a different slightly sort of avant-garde flavor because, you know, these kind of um, unusual high-minded craftspeople with exotic accents sometimes or speaking in a very British way will be floating around town and, and the these, locals were sort of nonplussed by it. Yeah, and, these craftspeople would have been pretty well educated too. Yes. It's oh, not yeah, just almost in- tradies yeah. dropping yeah. in. You're going to have yeah. people that are after lifestyle. Yes, they were. Um, they were. And, and some potters who'd been like, there was a guy, uh, Harry Davis and his wife May, who had been trained at, uh, by Bernard Leach. Yeah, right. And then, so you got a link back to, you know, Shoji Hamada and yeah. the whole Japanese tradition of pottery. So, you know, very kind of, what you might call high-minded. But, you know, they had a lot to do with sort of radical politics and um, environmentalism, proto-environmentalism. So it was, in many ways, it was a... It was an interesting kind of little bit of a of a, of a melting pot place in the uh, in the in, in the, well certainly in the, in the early seventies, and when I turned up, so it, it wasn't a kind of um, it wasn't like a ah, which which it could have been really quite a, like a wasteland really or you know New Zealand in the sixties was it had its interesting sides but it was pretty sort of stodgy and un, unremarkable 
So yeah, it was it was good. There was there was there was really quite a lot going on. You know, when I came out in '76, I was you know I was a kind of a classic, one of many uh, you know bearded kind of hippie types. I, I got married to Claire in '77. She she'd been my girlfriend for my last uh, year at Oxford, and uh, she came out to join me to my uh, absolute amazement. <laughs> So, um, we, and, and we got married, and then, and then as we say, the kids started having us. And, uh, <laughs> Straight away, bam. Yeah, it just Oops. happened. Um, so, by 78, we had the first, and Good 80 the second, and 83 the third. Finally figured out that we had some control over it, so it stopped at that point. Hey, so, what, let's, let's talk about your degree in history. Is that, the, is that what you thought you might do when you're doing your A-levels or your A-levels or something, or is it just something you fell into when you are at Oxford? It was, it was interesting. It, it was, I found that I could write a good, a good history essay. Quite why, I don't know, but I, but I found that I got mm. great marks in history essays. Mm. So Winchester was a little bit of a, a sort of training ground for Oxbridge entrants, as they called them, so Oxford yeah. and Cambridge. And you, it was kind of expected that if you went to Winchester, you'd end up at Oxford or Cambridge. So my brother went to Oxford, my dad went to Oxford, his dad went to Oxford. So, of course, you know, I, I didn't want to disappoint everyone. I, I, I was quite, you know, I wanted to please kind of child, really. I wasn't, I wasn't a radical or revolutionary. So I found Not I could write... Now. Not like now. No, completely <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so anyway, yeah, I, I, um, I managed to get a place at, at Oxford uh, reading history. And what happened was I took, I took six months. The Oxford entrance was in December. And so you didn't start again till, till the following September. So I had kind of nine months, ten months off. So I, 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 I took a boat out to um, New Zealand and um, yeah. uh, visited my family for the first time because I had been away for nearly two years. I hadn't, you know, I'd heard all about it, but I hadn't visited yeah. them. So. And I arrived in New Zealand. I think it was February 12th, 1972, uh, 73. And I just, just loved it. It was, it was kind of midsummer in Nelson, actually just about like it is now. You know, hot, dry, blue skies, these crazy steep hills. And it just felt, wow, this is the place I want to be. So I then, at the end of the six or eight months, I, I, I had to go back to England and knuckle down to do a history degree. But I was kind of over it. I really, I, I really didn't want to keep writing history essays. Mm. Um, what sort I of history of, did you do? Well, they call it modern history, which was from the fall of the Roman Empire up until 1939. And anything after 1939 was called current affairs. Um, mm. And anything before the fall of the Roman Empire was ancient history. So um, basically That's pretty from, broad, isn't it? <laughs> it's ridiculous, really, isn't it? I really like the, 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 um, the older period in many ways. I, I, I really like the... Um, uh, the development of Europe, the, the, you know, the, the, the Franks, um, part, you know, and how they, how France and Germany and Spain sort of came about, and then the um, the early medieval history, that the the incredible explosion of the monastic orders, because I visited some of those beautiful ruined abbeys like Revo and and uh, Fountains Abbey in Yorkshire and Melrose and Drybra, and uh, they were just the most beautiful places. Of course, you know, they were all knocked down by Henry VIII and, and um, became, became ruined. But it was a f just what made people do that was fascinating to me, yeah. what made people join these incredibly rigorous communities. They probably didn't have much choice. 
Well, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I, well, I don't know what it'd be like in medieval Europe, let alone anywhere else except for Australia. But it was <laughs> well, you know, the, the cathedrals, the Gothic cathedrals of England and Europe, still knock people's socks off. Oh, they are so astounding. Well, you will think what think what they were like back then. I mean, mm. when when you everyone was living in, in pretty much mud huts or the mm. simplest kind of buildings and these things of soaring beauty suddenly popping up in your midst. I mean, it, it was a very potent time, you know. We don't realise, you know, we, we, we only see the husk, you know, the outer shell, a cathedral, its body. But back in the day, there was a, a vigorous kind of life centred around it that we had mm. really just no idea of, you mm. know. I mean, we it's very much... You know, religion is terribly unfashionable now, and Monty Python and all of that English humour just excoriated anything to do with that sort of pomposity. And in and look at the you know the Roman Catholic Church lately; it's just got itself into such a heap of shit with with all the um, abuse things that no one wants to think about it. But back in the day, it also produced the most stunning architecture and music and ceremony ceremony as well. You know, there was a life there, and, and I just found that... Anyway, that was an aspect of history I found that was really, really interesting. Yeah. But I also loved the fact that coming to New Zealand, you, you got away from it all. Yeah. You know, you have this sort of weight. <laughs> you have a different history in New Zealand, though, don't you? You've got the Maori, which yeah, is a very rich tradition, culturally, I was about to say, in craft, which they do, but I, I had to, had to modify it because it's a lot deeper than that. And... You've also got the English colony and all the immigrants since then. Pretty interesting sort of mix. Still going on too. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I gradually got into the the, the, the way Māori interacted with Europeans, but the way Māori were in the, in the earliest stages of, of European encounters, I mean, there's the accounts of from, from Captain Cook onwards just shows such a vigorous people. So many interesting and powerful aspects. One of the things that always struck me was people who went on to the, um, the Marae, which is a kind of a meeting place, and heard the oratory of the old Maori. These were Englishmen who were used to what they thought was high-quality quality oratory, you know, from parliamentarians mm. and things like that. But the people who understood the language, and, and a lot of them learned it, you know, very thoroughly, were often astounded at the amazing inventive loquacity and incredibly clever phraseology and thought and, and wit of the, uh, of the Maori orators. Mm. It was a culture that, although it, it was well and truly done over by just sheer greed, really, um, desire to take their land and the pressure of colonial people pouring out, but there was always, and it, it's never been lost in New Zealand, a kind of residual underlying respect and admiration for uh, a lot of about Maori and about their culture and about their history and about how they went about things. Mm. Unfortunately, that's it's never been lost. And in the last 30, 40 years, there's been quite a you know, an attempt to try to set things a bit straighter between Maori and and uh, the English colonials and try to return some of their. And you can't really, but you know they're trying to return through the Waitangi Tribunal hearings. They're trying to return some of the, not just the, the wealth and the money, but the kind of what's called the mana or the sense of self-worth. Yeah. And it's kind of 
it's piecemeal. It's it, it works. It works well in some areas, and but Maori are not a, 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 a monolithic block either. You know, it's a very no, no. complicated society. Still, still very uh, rooted in, in tribal affiliation, mm. and you know, some some have done better than others. Some tribes have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Mm. Sounds like there's a sense of pride that's coming back. I, th- I think so, and uh, you know, I. I remember when we visited America and um, we went to the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. And it was like, when you went into that reservation, it was like entering a kind of third world country mm. in the middle of America. Mm. It was it was kind of just done down, dusty, hard scrabble, poor, and just not the sense of pride. And it really struck us that what a shame that America had never... Like it for our All Blacks. What do they start every game with? Mm, the Haka. Mm. Yeah. And mm. if only if baseball or something had adopted, you know, a native uh, American, I don't know, anything, which would have given the people and, and the white people as well a sense of a sort of pride and honoring. But there just isn't that sense, mm. you know. Sense of you know how do we get rid of these people and how can we you know shut them up and keep them quiet and that was definitely the Australian mentality back in the day. It's not now, not yeah. amongst people I know, but definitely back in the day it was let's breed them yeah. out of existence, yeah, yeah. and put them yeah. in places where nobody else would want to be. Yeah, that's it. Mm. It's a it's a shameful part of our colonial history here in Australia. I can't speak for New Zealand or America, but definitely here in Australia, something we need to work on. I think pe- people are now. I mean, it's amazing how mm. how mm. But it, it, it needs to be done. Like it, yeah, yeah, needs to be done. Do well, we, we, yeah, <laughs> I was going to ask: Does Maori culture influence you aesthetically in any way? Yes, I think it has. There's a around us. There's a there's a hard stone that was quarried in the uh, hilltops around the Nelson region out towards Devil Island and it's a it's a it's a belt it's it's a it's a kind of extremely hard mudstone that is kind of metamorphosed really called argillite the uh, local tribes used to quarry the quite large blocks of this of this very hard rock up in the hills and then bring them down to the coastal areas where, where we live and around Delaware Bay, Cable Bay and they used to nap them like, like flints, uh, used to chip mm. them into the rough shapes of these beautiful abses mm. which um, have the most amazing curvature on them, really, really beautiful curvature. I know them well. Okay, so you yeah, know them. I do, yeah. they're, that, they're gorgeous, that, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that adds shape, when I first saw those I thought, oh my God. And they're so varied. There's, there's ones that are only five inches long, and there's ones mm. that are over nearly 16 inches long. Oh my yeah. God. Going back to inches. Have you ever but, used yeah. one? No, I haven't. But a friend of mine, Joanna Orwin, well, she, we knew her years and years ago, she was a wood carver and she borrowed some greenstone carving chisels, mm. which were kind of like miniature adders, really, mm. from the Canterbury Museum, and carved them, carved uh, the, uh, the native uh, softwood totara with these. And she said it was amazing. I mean, the cutting angle is like about 50, 60 degrees instead of our, you know, mm. recommended five. But they still cut, actually, very beautifully. 
she said it was a, you know it was a different approach but you could cut actually beautifully with these with these tools and of course they did they did the most staggering um, uh, wood carvings particularly on the prows of their canoes and at mm. the ends of cables or the meeting houses mm. they, they, their carving ability was was absolutely amazing but the, but just the sort of it, it, this incredible sort of meeting of curved surfaces and um, that produced this sort of you know, culminating in this in this front edge the leading edge it was just just beautiful you know one one edge sort of swept up quite steep and the other was quite flat and then there's always a curve across the width of it as well so mm. they were yeah just just beautiful and, and undoubtedly i've been influenced by that not as much by the kind of figurative or not so much figurative, more symbolic kind of carving rods and things like that I, that, that less so but there's some canoe prows in museums in new plymouth for instance that are just absolutely exceptional they're, they're as beautiful mm. as any uh, celtic or you know or carved work. in fact surprisingly like celtic work in some ways yeah i think so too like that. and they tell stories too like all of that you could you can read all sorts of things if you know how to dis- decipher yeah yeah <laughs> Right. They were their books. They were their books, yeah. And the mukul, the the tattooing on the face, is is the lineage of that person, right? You know who, what the father did, who the grandfather was, who the grandmother was, how they were related to doing this and what they did for a living. It's all written down on the face. And yeah. the dude who signed the Treaty of Waitangi, he signed it with his mukul, which is his face tattoo, yeah. without using a mirror and. Ah. It's it's quite a doodle. It's a beautiful work of art. This his signature, <laughs> yeah. which is his. That's a lovely. His, I didn't know that, Adrian. That's a lovely detail. Yeah, the Mukul is sort of really interesting history too. The, they weren't really that prevalent. My understanding of this is anyway, when white people came, but when when the Europeans came and Maori tribes started being basically at war with other Maori tribes as well as Europeans, I guess. The mukul being a very martial type of insignia was brought back in force. So it was only in the early 1800s that it really started coming to, uh, coming alive as a as a thing. That's my understanding. And please, if somebody out there listening knows better than I do, which you probably do, wouldn't be hard. Just let me know. But you may well be right. Uh, there was a sad aspect to this, though, that I heard about, which was that, you know, Europeans with their kind of sick interest in these things thought that these uh, moko were, were were kind of decorative examples of wild cannibalistic art. And uh, there was a trade in the 1820s and 30s mm, yeah. of um, shrunken heads with these yeah. tattoos uh, moko on them. And, of course... Where there was the demand, a su- supply turned up, and yep. apparently not all of these moko were like from warriors. They were just uh, a captured slave would be tattooed, killed, beheaded. That went the shrunken head to some museum in um, in, in Europe, and uh, that's a sort of that. You know, I'm afraid that's just human nature, isn't it? What was the thing that inspired you to become like a fine furniture maker in a more modern tradition? Well. I, I have a brother-in-law, um, John Shaw, who um, who married my wife's um, sister, and she, so she she also came out to New Zealand. John was an, an, a, a, a moved out from England when he was about twelve. He he kind of knew exactly what he wanted to do at a sort of much younger age than, than I did in many ways, and he was around in the 
He went to Rycotewood in, in, mm. at the same time I was doing my antique restoration. He was back in England. They had no children at, at that stage. And he did a training at Rycotewood College and came back to, to, to Nelson already a, a, an accomplished sort of cabinet maker. And be, beyond anything I aspired to, I mean, I was restoring antiques. I had My ambition did not rise as high as, as, as the sort of cabinet making that, that John could do. Yeah, just pardon me for interrupting, but cabinet making is not designer making. No, but he was just—he was just at the at the beginning of when you know it was. He was starting to. It was. It was. Rycotewood was a kind of design cabinet making yeah. training. Mm. The last was a self-designed piece, and he made a beautiful kind of Chinese-inspired type of table, which was to me like absolutely amazing. But my ambition just didn't. It was beyond what I could conceive of doing myself. You know, I could cut in bits of veneer and, and carve a new bit of a finial or something like that. But the idea of making something from scratch to me was really something quite quite beyond me. At that um, time, though, because now that, you don't have a problem with it, do you? You're all over it. Yeah, I, I you know, well, I mean, yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, you've seen it too, Adrian. And, and I mean, look, you know, I, I've looked, look at your work, I mean. Yeah, where the hell did you learn all your skills? Wow, God, do you know what you do? You you have a go and you make a few mistakes and you keep having yeah. a go. That's what you do. And yeah. God damn, like reading books and looking and talking to people and just exactly. being immersed the thing, in though, it. Isn't it? Is, is actually getting really interested in it. What happened was in 1983 and 1984, the New Zealand Crafts Council for some reason, I had no idea even who was in charge then. I mean, I wasn't that involved. But they brought out, within a year of each other or a year and a half, they brought out, first of all, Jim Krenoff. Mm. Did you Alan ever meet him? Did you? Yeah, he, he came He came to Wellington and uh, there was a sort of little busload of hippies, <laughs> including <laughs> me and John and, uh, and a few other um, mates. Um, mm. And we all crashed at my dad's little flat because he'd separate, he and my mum had separately had a flat in, in yeah. Wellington. Yeah. We all crashed there and spent a week at the feet of Jim Cranoff, which was like completely mind-blowing. I mean, yeah. I have no idea how sort of, whatever you do, I'm sure you do, but it was a, it was like a sort of an, you know, an Old Testament prophet come to life. Is that right? Yeah. This guy was just, was just so, so out there and so sort of um, incredibly potent. But I, I could see it was kind of a difficult kind of scratchy character as well. But what happened was he, he, he took a real shine to John, who was already a, a fabulously well-trained cabinet maker, mm. and said to John, look, I'd like you to come over to join me at the College of the Redwoods in uh, California. Good God. Well, that's, what, that, that's where he was um, sort of, he was set up. Yeah. And, and he got John a Fulbright scholarship for wow. a year to go over. <laughs> so you can imagine, you know, Claire and I, Claire and I with our, you know, burdened with our kids and John and, and, and Claire's sister swanning off for a full bite for a year in California. We were, yeah. It's probably one of the only times in my life where I felt a bit envious, actually. <laughs> It'd be really interesting to talk to him about that experience and, and have him relive and how he feels about it now. Yeah, oh, well, it was, it was a kind of crazily good time, really. It was absolutely wonderful. And he came back, and actually what happened was he was kind of snaffled by the local Polytech that was getting a um, craft design course 
yeah. or, or craft course going, and they wanted someone with you know good street cred to run yeah. the wood, the woods department. And so John got you know he got offered a good you know straight away got offered a good salary and position and everything, and that was hard to refuse. So he kind of moved into that, kind of put his own making things pretty much on hold for about fifteen six years. Yeah, and. Look, I, we're talking about you here, David, but I, I just wouldn't mind touching base on that because here's a situation where somebody has got a day job and talk to a few people about getting a day job and its benefits and its disadvantages. Would you have any idea whether or not John thought it was a benefit or a disadvantage? Well, it was a benefit in that, in that they could live. Yeah. John is perhaps like like you, you know you said you were, you weren't a person who liked to repeat um, things that you'd already done. Mm. Has a very you know a low threshold for the sort of repetition and boredom really I guess. Unlike me, has a very high threshold for repetition <laughs> and boredom. Whatever rocks your boat, hey, like yeah. Yeah, that's basically it. But uh, I, I think you know John John would have it would have been a. a even bigger struggle for him than me because, I mean, I was also prepared to, to kind of do what I needed to do. And antique restoration was a great way of, uh, of keeping money coming in. I mean, back in the early days mm-hmm. when I started making a high chair and a dining chair and then my first simple rocking chair, if I hadn't known that, oh, well, I've got, I've got a month's restoration work, which can top up the bank again, I, I gotcha. just couldn't have done it. Yeah. It gives you a bit of a bit of anxiety relief, doesn't it? You you yeah, can you yeah, can have I, a go. I had something like that. Well, for John, mm. it was a day, it was effectively a day job. You know, he had reasonably good long holidays, and um, yeah. he certainly didn't not make anything. He made a lot, but it, it enabled him not to have to think about what he what he made as as having to bring in enough money to pay the bills. Mm. Did you guys make things together, or did you collaborate? No. Actually, we, we didn't. Not, I mean, we were, we were and are. We remain very close mm. friends. and absolute, but, but we also recognize that we're very different. Mm. We go about things in a, in a different way. Mm. I'm wondering, though, maybe instead of the word collaboration, we could insert something like bouncing ideas off each other or something. You know, you could be almost mentors for each other in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think... John certainly was for me in, in early days. He was, uh, you know, his advice and his help was absolutely invaluable to me. No, yeah. no question about that. Yeah. So let's go back. Jim Krenov comes out, you bow at his feet. Yep. He allows you to lick his boots a few times and then he nicks off and then Alan Peters comes out and that's another huge name in... Um... Alan Peters was, was to me the kind of, he was the one that galvanised it for me. Uh-huh. I mean, with Jim, with Jim Krenov, it was about the kind of the poetry of it, mm. the, the immersion with no other considerations, mm. you know, the total focus on, on the, the how and the why you were doing it. And, and Alan Peters was in every way as fine a craftsman, mm. wonderful craftsman, but mm. he was also a businessman. He was a businessman. And, yeah. And, and, and it was kind of, to, to, to be honest, it was, it was kind of music to my ears to hear someone say, look, you, you, can, you can be creative, you can make this wonderful stuff, and you can also do it and make a living. And that was, because Jim Cranoff wasn't interested in that side of it. But Alan, Alan was, mm. Alan Peters was, and uh, he, he, he became my role model, really. Yeah, that's interesting. How, how he went about it. I mean, that was nothing, nowhere near his... No Indians never could be his his level, but he just 
he just kind of pointed out the straightforward things. It's not like business, like a dirty word. It was just like, you know, just what, you know, how do you bill for something? How do you make, how do you make account of for all, all your mm. expenses? You know, what is a fair hourly rate? How do you deal with clients? How do you deal? Yeah, how do you deal with clients? You know, what, what's a fair way to do? How, His you know, book is, all is sort of such an interesting book because it came out a few years after Jim Cranoff's books, which was all about the poetry and composing with wood or craft. You can do it in ceramic as easily as you can with timber. And I'm just, I can't quite think of what Alan Peter's book was called, but it was a, it was a direct response to that idea. Yeah. Can you remember yeah. what was his book? I'm just looking on my bookshelf now and I can't see it. You know, I haven't even got it. Don't you? <laughs> I don't have it. No. Yeah. Meeting him and, oh, I think I've, I've always been a borrower of books. You know, the library maybe had it. <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've bought it just because books at New Zealand are really expensive. Are they? Oh, that's so sad. Really expensive. Yeah. Like, like twice the price of American books for a start. Yeah. So I've kind of cobbled together a smallish library over the years. Not not a fantastic library. What, what Alan Peters did as well was leave a lot of... He left in one week just a massive amount of material, sort of um, sheets and sheets of of things, including, you know... Like uh, written checks. pieces of paper as opposed to... Is, is that what you're meaning, or...? Yeah, I mean, he, it was like in, in those days, you know, he, he photocopied off a whole bunch of, yeah. of handouts, really. Yeah. And, um, and, I, kept, and I kept them because they were free. Yeah. Was, you know, <laughs> Maybe you should buy and, them and, in a book and... Yeah, and, but he just, it just, it just, he just laid a... Like his step-by-step cutting and fitting dovetail drawers you know uh-huh. um, I, that's exactly what I still do he, he yeah. showed the process actually that's what he did in the week he was there he went through the process of yeah. cutting the dovetails in the, for the carcass fitting and but you know pre-fitting the pieces um, then cutting the dovetails and leaving it just a smidgen over and then planing that fit in until it was a beautiful fit yeah. and that's how I still do it you know it's a it was a, a lovely thing to master back then mm. Do you think it's important for young people or people that are starting out in a craft or art to go overseas and get involved in in the equivalent of Alan Peters and Jim Credov in whatever field you're wanting to get involved in? Yeah, I, th- I think if yeah, definitely you you want you want to go and hang, hang around or see or be with somehow or other the, the, the people who who you admire, even if it's. I was sort of involved in Buddhism when I was, was, was younger, and there was a saying which I never understood, but I, and I still probably don't, but it's, um, if you find the Buddha on the path, slay him. <laughs> and, That's a bit um, ruthless. What's that? That's a bit ruthless, but hey, you're good with tools, so you probably could do it fairly well. <laughs> <laughs> but I sort of understand, I think, I think I know what it means. It's like, you know, if, if you think you've found the ultimate guru, that's a danger for you as well. Mm. So in some ways, you know, you, I think you, you want to travel and see the people you admire. Not necessarily so that you can just cement your total admiration, but see mm. them truly as, you know, as human beings, good mm. and bad, and their strengths and their weaknesses. Be inspired, you know, and, and Alan Peters unquestionably inspired me. Yeah. Um, in fact, I couldn't really see a fault in him, to be honest. No. He was it was as near, as near the, the, the perfect thing as I could find. But Jim Cranoff was definitely a, kind of a flawed genius. You know, he was a wonderful, mm. wonderful orator and talker, mm. but he was, he could turn on a sixpence and be as mean as hell too. Yeah, really. 
Yeah. Imagine being part of his family. Good God. Here's somebody yeah. that's just completely self-absorbed yeah. and yeah. most probably narcissistic. <laughs> My God, <laughs> just imagine. He could also be the most wonderful, giving, kind, yeah. lovely person, but he, he, he could also be the most cantankerous, curmudgeonly old bugger, you know. Yeah. The stories about him are just legion, you know. Uh, I, everyone I meet who's ever met Jim has come up with a different a different story, and they're, you know, they're, um, someone's got to put together the, the anecdotes about Jim, actually. Right. right. Yeah. Do you know... Uh, Alan yeah. was lovely. Alan, yeah, yeah. Jim Krenov is the reason I I do woodworking. I read his book, The Cabinet Maker's Notebook, and I just I was gone. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. That was yeah. that was. I even enrolled in the College of Redwoods back in the day. Oh, you did. What year was that? Oh, good God, nineteen ninety-two. Okay. Yeah. I didn't go. I went to Canberra School of Art instead. But the reason I didn't go is because I got in touch with this dude called Rodney Hayward who had gone a few years before. In fact, Rodney's a New Zealander. Do you know Rodney? Yeah, Rodney was there with John. Yeah, that he would be right. He was at with John Shaw. Yeah, 83. Sounds about the right time. And so he came. Yeah, he yeah. came back and moved to a, a little town called Bundanoon in the southern highlands of New South Wales, which is got to be one of the most gorgeous little towns in the entire world he said to me when i went up and visited him don't go to california you want to go to the canberra school of art and muck around with george ingham which is what i ended up doing but uh, interesting enough, Rod- Rodney Hayward took over from George Ingham when George Ingham got too sick to do the course at the Canberra School of Art, and Rodney ended up doing that for about 10 years. So. Yeah, yeah. I met him. He came to Nelson. A lovely, lovely man. Oh, Rodney's... Uh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Rodney's, real, Rodney's real gentle, gentle awesome. It, the brain the size of a planet. Yeah. <laughs> that man has information that I'll never learn. <laughs> like, you know, it's just, it's all there. <laughs> yeah. So did, yeah. You, did you study with George then? Yep. Yep. George was oh. my, my mentor. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he, he I had a, um, I think I talked about it at that talk at, at, the, at the AWR festival in 2018. Mm. George came across in, in, in 1989 and, and, and uh, curated the first national New Zealand craft furniture show, if you like. Yeah, right. And um, I met him in Christchurch when he was selecting pieces pieces there. And um, and then in 1990, um, I went to Australia. And we took a, I took a year out and helped a friend build a house in the Blue Mountains. And uh, toward the end of the year, I, I sort of came up with the design for the signature rocking chair, or now yeah. I call it the monocle. The monogram, yeah. Yeah, and panicked at a certain stage when I realised I hadn't really a clue how to go about making this thing I'd drawn. And so I went to see um, George Ingham, who I who I had met uh, before, so I thought he, he might, you know, he might be kindly disposed. And very presumptuously, I, I, I said, look, uh, you know, I've got a family of three kids. I, I can't afford to do a two-year uh, course with you. Could I kind of do like a postgraduate thing and and build my chair in uh, you know in your workshop you know with a little bit of help? <laughs> and and what, he, 
He famously said to me with a slightly sort of is a Scottish accent or something. He said, David is no, no. To come here, he'd have to do the foundation course too. <laughs> really, is that what he said? That's what he said. <laughs> Good God! Yeah, so he was. I mean, he was. He, he was like. Other than that, he was super friendly and you know, showed me everything. And yeah. I was. It was. It was really. I got a really interesting impression, though, of the of the of the place and the course and the and the students. And it was kind of. It was almost like too high pressure. I I, I just felt everyone was like kind of a bit on edge and a bit sort of overwhelmed. Yeah. And, and the expectation level was so high. Uh, it was yeah, pretty intense. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, did you? Yeah. Oh god, yeah, I loved it to pieces. I immerse. I talk about immersion. Yeah. I was in that workshop seven days a week from seven in the morning till ten o'clock at night. I just man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the right person, that was probably absolutely perfect. Yeah, well, I was at that time one of a number, I guess, but one of the one of the right people. Yeah, it just really rocked for me. Yeah. So, talk to us about this monogram, Chi. You must, you've been building that for a long time, and this is uh, just going back to the very start of our conversation about building things again. Have you modified that design, or is it the same design that you do? And it, it's. I- the modifications are uh, in, in detailing and, and proportion and joinery. Uh-huh. But the, the 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 basic chair, because it was, I, I sort of I modelled it on uh, on the uh, on an earlier chair I'd made, an earlier rocking chair, which was completely different looking. It was had a had a slat back and seven or seven or nine slats uh, running up the back, uh-huh. and was kind of a chair on rockers, not a you know. Uh, in other words, a bit, a bit like a Maloof, but different because it, it had um, horizontal, not vertical um, back supports. Um, but it was really comfortable and the balance was good. So when I designed this new chair, I kind of plotted the points of balance from the old chair and made sure that the key bits ran through the places where I wanted the curves to run in the new chair. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, it, it, in a pretty crude way, but it, I, I kind of... And got the balance and the and the comfort and the ergonomics pretty damn good. So, really, the chairs, the fundamental uh, sort of ergonomics and and configuration of the chair has has hardly altered. And all the the, the fussing and the settling I do, it's, it's really getting detail and and purport, not so much proportion as the shaping of the individual members and how they join and the joiner that links them. Mm. So yeah, that's that's really been it. No, the fundamental chair it was was good from well as far as i was concerned it was good from the from the get-go mm. look people can see these chairs or at least four of them on your website and let's just tell people what the website address is www.davidhaig.co.nz yep and haig is h-a-i-g yeah no no h or anything at the end of it yeah no so david haig h-a-i-g co.nz and the monogram chairs are basically on the home page I think aren't they they're pretty easy to find yeah there's a page with other, other works as well yeah there I is mean, yeah do you make them to order or do you make them speculatively no to order basically I'd say 95% of them have been to order yeah and how do you get your orders like how does that come about well the, the real 
I, I guess I, I put the, the first and the second ones were obviously speculative, and they, they both sold. Uh, one from a from a show and one one in an exhibition in, in Nelson. What happened really was that the, the, the chair was kind of was very easy to to, to photograph, particularly in sort of profile, to, and, and it looked just great. It looked so elegant that it tended to be the image that was picked up. If there was if it was in an exhibition of furniture, it would often be the piece that would be picked up to be. A headline piece in, 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 in an article about it, whether it was in a, you know, whatever. So it, it didn't take long at all for the, um, in fact, the very first chair I, I made of the first monogram, I took it to Christchurch for, for a show with a group of other makers. And it was on the front page of the, of the local paper, mm. weekend edition. It was like, what? <laughs> but, but that's what happened. It was a very photogenic piece and and so it kind of got known very really very quickly and then mm. in about 1998-99 New Zealand had the America's Cup um, here, it might have yes. been 2000 yes. and the Lord of the Rings was getting going and suddenly <laughs> people were flooding into, into, into New Zealand and, mm. and doing the rounds and my business was already quite established and the rocking chair was in, was in craft magazines and you know, my my my, my workshop well, it wasn't it wasn't you know on a tourist route, but it was it was there. People could find it out, mm. and and then I then I also put a put a, I put a chair in a gallery in Christchurch with a wonderful lady who who just I, I don't know what she had the magic touch. She could she could sell these chairs, and she all I took orders off that chair, and in about four years I must have had forty orders. Good God. Um, it was absolutely astounding. Have you got sick of making them, or are you just completely enamoured with it still, and <laughs> still a challenge? And I, 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 every every one I treat as a, as a, as a new one and mm. uh, as, a, as a challenge. I mean, I like you know it sounds mercenary, I guess, but I, I like I like making them because they enabled me to do other things. Um, because by making the rocking mm. chairs, it was a kind of a known, a, a, a mm. known process and a known beginning and an end. Yeah. And and you know, if, in the history of my bank balance, which in a sense has been the the constant pressure in in, in, in my working life, is just try to try to keep afloat. You know, I. I, I You're have, not alone, David. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, we're all the same. Yeah. So what, I've managed to do it without you know, having to get employed by someone. So, mm. so making three rocking chairs and the bank balance would go up, and then I'd spend two months, three months doing a commission piece, something new, and, and mm. in, inevitably, you know, you never made that much. And at the end of it all, I was saved by having another three rocking chairs to make. Mm. So, boom, go again, and that—that's how it just went for years. And <laughs> funny way, it's, it's not really changed. It's—it's it's still much the same. But I, what I've enjoyed is just refining the detail. And, and I guess, like, you know, if you're making a violin or something like that, you know, you, 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 you're making, in a sense, the same violin. But w So what drives mm. a violin maker to make, a, to make his... That's such an violin? interesting thing, yeah. I think if you're making something that you, you believe in and that you feel is good and that is a pleasure to make, and then there's a lot of handwork in it, and I think that's probably, in some ways, the key to the, the continuing enjoyment of it. Because you like the handwork. a lot of handwork. I haven't. It's mm. not all mechanised. It's, it's a lot of detailing. And, and that requires a kind of, that's, you know what it's like, you're a woodworker, that special mm. focus 
of, of, of working wood finally is incredibly enjoyable. Yeah, time disappears, doesn't it? You, you get involved in something to an extent that nothing else has really kind of come and touch you. There's no inner voice anymore that's talking to you about something banal. It's just the woodwork and and the work. And I think across the board with craft, people who are craftspeople and musicians and probably any sort of art making, one of the main drivers is to get rid of that inner voice and to have time just disappear. I reckon everybody who's involved in a creative pursuit partly is in it for that feeling. I think you're right, yeah. And people that aren't are trying to achieve it in other ways and do woodworking or pottery on the weekends or gardening. Anything to do with your hands is, is such a way out of that inner world. Yeah. I think that in, in woodworking it's... The temptation, because it's relatively easy to, to sort of jig up and mechanise every damn thing, is it's just it's not it's not you've got to resist it. But um, no, come on, you have to, you have to, be, you have to be pure. Let's all be pure. You kind of you kind of do, but but I mean, I'm, you know, my machines are my best friends too. Um, <laughs> Look, what a, I'm just wondering, are you a tool geek? Um, I just like. I'm not really in, in, in a, I don't like to get a tool just because it's a tool. I, I like to get a tool because it does something useful. So you're not a collector, you're a tool user. I'm a tool user, I'm, yeah. and I like to get my machines tuned up and my hand tools yeah. working really, really well. And, yeah. and, and that gives me a great deal of pleasure. But just, just looking at a shelf of 25 planes would give me no particular pleasure. Yeah, so what do you do when people give you hand planes? I'm sure they do. Say again? When people give you a hand plane, oh, my yep. granddad had this and it's 1902 Bailey number yep. six or something. You just give it away, do you? You don't keep it. I No, I, I keep what I need. <laughs> I, I keep what I need. I, I, I've got quite ruthless, really. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, in, in many ways, if, if I could just ha- get down to just 10 hand tools, that would be great. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, that, uh, and just keep all of them in perfect order. If you could have only one, what would you have? Oh. Yeah, come on, like let's get really super ruthless. Like what? Like like one hand tool? Or yeah, what? yeah, one one hand tool. Yeah. Wow! Wow! Oh my god! Probably <laughs> a spoke shave. Would you? <laughs> god, you philistine! Because you could because you could, you could flatten things with it, but you could also carve curves on you it. You could. But like saying like like if there was only one power tool I had, unquestionably it would be a bandsaw. Would it? Yeah. What about a handheld power tool? Oh, to be honest, my, my, probably my, my favourite handheld power tool is an electric drill. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say an electric drill too. Yeah. And bandsaw, yeah, that'd be one, wouldn't it? Except it's a little yeah. bit big. If you could get like a pocket-sized bandsaw, you yeah, just pull it out and inflate it or something. <laughs> <laughs> I have never seen one of those. I'm going to invent one. I think yeah, I just no, well, everything else inflates. You get inflatable. What was I looking at? Car awnings for caravans. Now you actually just blow them up. Blow them up. Blow I reckon them. if I had one tool only, it'd probably be a knife. Yes. Yes, you're probably right. Actually, I, I think I think that's a better thought. I think a knife would be it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah pocket. How yeah. how often do you reckon you use a spoke shave in a month? 
Well, if I'm building the rocking chairs, I'm using them a heap. <laughs> every, like, day. You know, every Every second or third day. I mean, I've, I've actually, I'm actually making a two um, folium chairs now, and I've been, uh, you know, shaping up the front legs and the back mm. leg, and it's nothing but spoke shape work. Yeah, right. Well, now I bounce up the shape, but all of the detailing and all the shaping is yeah. spoke shape. It's a bloody yeah. lot of work, isn't it? There's yeah. masters of shavings at my feet. I hardly ever use a spoke shave. Really? Really? No. I hardly ever. I, 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 no, I've got a well, whole bunch of them. Like, cause I'm a collector. I'm a mad collector, but I don't collect, buy and sell things. I just find stuff in trash and chesses and then it goes in a box somewhere, which I never look at <laughs> and, until I move house. And then I go, oh, my God, look at this. This is really interesting. <laughs> I would use a block plane over a spoke shave pretty much any day, and I made some curved bottom planes like yep. probably 25 no more 30 years ago i reckon yeah one's got a curve in one way it's just a yep. basic curve pretty tight you know maybe 200 mil or a foot diameter or something and the other one's yep. got a curve along its length and yep. that would be yep. it's pretty shallow and i've got a few old hollows like people yeah, are, who oh, that's are, exactly what I've got. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and people who are uh, ceramists or who are just listening for fun uh, won't know what a hollow is. But it's it's a what's called a molding plane, and the bottom of the the sole, the bit that touches the wood, is curved in a convex shape, which yeah. makes a hollow, which is why it's called a hollow. I've got a little set. I bought them back in 1981 from my, you know, when I was That's restoring. It. That's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The hollows are super useful, but the rounds, which is the exact opposite, are you, you wouldn't touch them, would you? I don't know about no. you, but you'd never use <laughs> them. But the hollows are just so – every now and they again. Are. Absolutely. Yeah, every yeah. now and again you just, like, pull them out and, yep, good. It's good fun. I guess, I, I guess um, yeah. I mean, the block plane, I, I use the block plane mainly for con, uh, convex surfaces. Well, obviously, because you can't use one on the concave Yeah, that's surface. right. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. The beauty yeah. of the spoke shape, you can use it for both. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with a very slight, with a very slight rounded sole, the, the spoke shape can be used to do you know, gentle hollows as well as obviously, you know, convex, convex surfaces very well. What about CNC machinery? Would you ever be interested in having one of those in your workshop? Yes, I would. Me too. I actually used used a CNC for the first time when I was in Maine. I, I did a, a, I was an artist in residence at the yep. Centre for Furniture Craftsmanship there in, in um, September last year, September and October. Cool. And um, they had a CNC in the uh, in, in the workshop, and there was a one of the young students there who was an incredibly clever guy. But all young people seem incredibly clever to me these days. <laughs> And uh, I had a I had a, a, a specific problem to, to, to cut a, a, a kind of a, a taper on a highly curved series of members, and um, and he said, well, if you could do this on, I could have made a, a, a taper jig and run it through a, a thicknesser, but they didn't have a wide thicknesser, mm. and I needed like a really wide thicknesser for that. And he said, you could do it on the on the CNC, and I said. I sort of thought about it. Thought, yeah, of course you could. The CNC will just, you know, very easily plot plot the curve. You want, I say, easily. And I said, I said, well, could you could you just plot out the curve and we'll, we'll set it up? He said, yeah, it'll be a piece of cake. And half an hour later, he plotted the curve, and I couldn't believe it. I I just went, you know, inducted into the use of this machine. Turned on. To, it's so weird, you know, to turn on a computer and up on the screen comes the things that you need to 
you know, do next and pressed a button and integrated the whole thing. And the next thing was this machine was whirring around and following this curve exactly. And as long as you'd set up the thing accurately and, the, you know, it was a fairly simple one, but I guess it was just, it was quite amazing. And, and it really, it did a very accurate job, a, a much better job than I could have done on a thickness planer. Yeah. What about using it for your monogram rocking chairs, like all those curves? Um, Look, I, I probably could, but there's actually there's there, there's nothing there that I can't do pretty pretty much as as well with a you know to get the co- using a copy bit and a copy and and, and and a jig to get the basic curves perfect. Mm. You know, once I steam bent them, I I, I over right. I, you know, I side the bends and then I and then I come back and and, and shape them down exactly yeah. to the shape. And because I'm not doing that many, you know, to take them, I don't know. Yeah, I could. It could be done on a CNC, but 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 I don't. And, yeah. and the trouble is afterwards because most of the pieces are tapered, not only in their thickness but in their width as well. So you can't just run it over a. Uh, you know, I can get the basic square shape off a, um, a copy bit uh, or a spindle molder, but I can't get the curves because the because the curve the curve is changing mm. as, it, as it goes down the piece. Yeah, so sweeps, that's yeah. where it's all spoke shape handwork. What about the engineering component of these chairs? They're works of art, not only in aesthetically, visually, and in comfort, but also in the use of the material like if you've managed to get these chairs using only the material that's absolutely needed is that engineering sensibility something that you've learnt or is it innate or is it something that's just an iterative process where you have a go it works you keep going down that pathway or you have a go it doesn't work or you're not going to go down that pathway anymore uh, that's a, a beautifully structured question I might uh, I might say yeah I, th- I think, and the, the thing about chairs is, you start, you start building chairs, you start sitting in them, and you you get a, a very quick, intuitive sense of the strength that you need, what wood will put up with, and what it won't. And I definitely am interested in, you know, making a chair, kind of reducing it to the, the and as you put it very, very well, to the kind of the least you can possibly get away with, but still maintaining enough enough strength to be honest the, the, the rocking chair was a, was a was a gamble really i didn't know for sure whether it would work and and there are joints i've beefed up later mm. and uh, seeing how they work and i've decided this and that joint needs needs uh, more strength i guess after so many years you'd know if there's any failures you'd know where the problems were wouldn't you yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I've got no idea if you do have failures. You may not. If they don't have failures, maybe you need to. I had. I no. I I, I had a few. You know, in around the early 2000s, came back, and believe it or not, the the failure point was one of the last places I ever thought. Yeah, there you it go. Was not at all where where I thought it would fail. Yeah. Interestingly, not on the steam bent parts. The steam bent parts have been remarkably good. I, I read a statistic years ago. Oh, if you steam bend wood, you reduce it by thirty percent of its strength. Nah, nah. St- I mean, it's it's all down to the joining parts. It's where the components come together in any yeah. material. That's the point of failure, almost always. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Almost always. You can have material a lot thinner and finer away from a joint, but as it yeah. comes up to that joint, you need to add more material, and that's across materials. 
It, yeah. You only have to look at a tree branch coming out from a tree to see that. Yeah. that that's a, a, a really good. That's a really good point and an absolutely accurate observation too. Yeah. yeah uh, it is what about being able to make things? And you just mentioned before you can kind of you putting think components together and you can see get a sense of whether or not it's going to be okay or not. What if you're a designer and you're reliant on a manufacturer or you're going to subcontract the manufacturing, you can't actually make something yourself. Do you reckon, I don't know if this is... I wouldn't, is... Be, I wouldn't, I, I'm probably not a, you know, my, my, my designing is, it's not blueprint designing, you know, I sit no, down... No, it's, it's clearly not, I want to, yeah, go, how do you go about it? Like, how do you go about designing? But I also want to have a chat about if somebody was a designer, what the pros and cons of also being able to make something would be but let's let's start with how you go about doing a design um i, I do a lot of a lot of doodling and sketching it, 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 it and often as as i'm very often the case in my experience it usually has to start with 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 a function in mind you know I'm, I, i'd be useless as a pure sculptor because i i like that furniture is essentially rooted in function first mm. and if you can make the, the object both like William Morris really both beautiful and useful then then you've you know you've achieved something something special and you know there's nothing more you know it really comes together in, in, in a chair I guess so I, I think of, I think the chairs are pretty what interesting I'm looking some sort of integration uh, of of lines and and a sort of some kind of rhythmic quality almost that sort of suddenly jumps out at me in some way and gets my heart pumping a little faster to be honest something like that and you know certainly with the with the monogram chair when I finally drew it my um, you know my my, my heart rate went, was right up it was a, do it was you a, draw in a two dimensional like a, a, it'd be side elevation, I guess, for that particular chair, or do you draw in three-dimensional? Have you, have you got... I've got better at drawing three-dimensionally. Yeah. I've got better at drawing three-dimensionally. Um, when I drew the folium chair, that was uh, a strong memory of that too, that, that sort of had been sort of, just a sort of an idea vaguely in the back of my head, and then I sort of thought, oh, I, must, I must draw this out and see what it looks like, and I did quite a good... 3D sketch, and I just thought, oh wow! Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but to be honest, those moments they don't come very often. I mean, that's that, that's probably why I repeat things. You know, I, I I've made a few good things, but I'm not. I haven't made. You know, I'm not a Picasso. I'm not a, a Bob Dylan. I'm not. I'm, you know, it's not just a tap that pours out of me creativity. You know, it's a hard process and a hard one thing to come up with anything. That's, I agree. I 100% agree. I think that's a great, what, what I see with, with, uh, with a lot of design is some terrifically good nuggets of ideas, but they don't, they're not taken far enough. They're not developed. Mm. People rush on to the next thing and they don't see what they, you know, I'm impressed when people do kind of um, theories or, you know, work through an idea in a sort of, you know, in, in all sorts of ways, but they, but the basic idea they keep, you know, they just refine it. And mm. um, that, to me, is, is more interesting than jumping like a jack in the box from one great idea to another great idea. You know, that, that, that's that. where. That's what I wanted to tease out more or less with this idea about making monogram chairs again and again and again. Part of the great benefit of doing that, it seems to me, is that you are refining it to its essence. 
What? Again and again and again and again, and you might use a dark timber and something will be a little bit wider, maybe, and only you're going to be able to see that. Sure. I mean, I do enjoy a sort of a king hit visually by, by going from Sycamore, which is mm-hmm. pure white, to the richest, darkest, chocolatiest old English walnut, which is, you know, completely different. And, and, and I think, I mean, you know, everyone who knows who works wood, whether you're, you know, how, on whatever, the wood turners, carvers, or whatever, um, you know, the wood itself, as you're working it, is just constantly kind of, well, some woods more than others, but, but you know, has a different, uh, you know, life and flavor and, mm. and, and sense about it. And you get, get really quite lost in that. And then I think, uh, you know, for me, the... I still get a huge pleasure out of out of just shaping wood and 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 watching the pattern change as you come around the corner and a, from a flat saw to a quarter saw piece and see what the pattern's doing, what, where mm. the grain's going, and, and and making beautiful shapes in it that allow that all to come to life. Let's drop back to this notion of being a designer and not a maker. Yeah. A designer wouldn't have the wood or any other material, be it ceramic, fabric, whatever, come alive under their hands as they're doing it i'm thinking of a please don't get upset designers out there because i don't it's i'm I'm kind of thinking more stereotypical designer capital d inverted commas do you think in your mind that that would be a limitation or would that be more freeing that you don't have to worry about the materiality so much you're more worried about color form shape pattern and the materiality, somebody else can figure that out, or even the way materials get joined together, the technology behind it, how it gets made. It's a, it's a different beast, isn't it, really, Adrian? It, you know, that, that kind of world. I mean, I guess in actual fact, 95% of the designers in the world are probably making things that are for injection plastic molds, and every gadget and gizmo that you can think of has been thought up by a designer sitting at a a computer these days, so I mean, it's just it, 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 it's okay for for, it, for for industry, and I mean, people come up with some some. I mean, look at David Trubridge and his and his beautiful lights. He's not he's not directly uh, you know touching the material. He he's 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 thinking these things out on a on a computer program, and is clever enough to figure out how to how to make these these amazing forms and shapes. And mm. I'm not trying to be moralistic here and i'm not trying to say this is a good thing or a bad thing what i'm trying to get at is somebody who's starting out wanting to be a designer in furniture or in textiles or something like that and thinking to themselves how can i get the best education and skill set that i can do i worry about getting hand skills or well, do I just go and get... You know, I think thinking of the best modern design, you know, where it's come from, and, and, and everyone thinks about the Danish model and the Scandinavian model, and, and uh, you know, designers like, like Hans Wagner, they were brilliant because they, they were also fantastic woodworkers. So they, they would design and then go into the, 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 the shop and with a, with a master cabinet maker um, nut out the intricacies of the actual piece itself so you know in a real, chair real size full size it, it, yeah he, it, mm. it's a it's a total exploration of of chair making because he didn't end at the drawing he, he went into the shop and he he actually made them and and knew every aspect of the woodworking side of it too so it, i've got to believe it, it, it it's a 
it's a limitation in, in, in your education as a designer if you have if, if it ends at a drawing and you don't take it to the you stage yourself well David Haig's power went off just about now and we lost contact I did have another really great conversation with David and that's going to be part two of the David Haig experience on the Designer Maker Revolution stay tuned for that that should be up next week Thanks for listening. As always, really, really appreciate it. And I've been getting so much excellent feedback. Love that. Makes my day. Please get in touch. Till next time we speak, have a great week. Ciao.